Well, I hope this morning finds you well. Uh, the last few weeks, we've been in a study on the book of Jonah, a study, a series on the book of Jonah. Uh, and so today is part three. We're looking at Jonah chapter three. And if you haven't been here for one or both of the last two, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen on either on the website or the podcast app. Um, because Jonah has been really uh, awesome. It's been awesome for me. Uh, I've been learning a lot of new things about Jonah that I've never seen before. Um, But just to give you a quick recap, uh, bring us all up to speed. Chapter 1 of Jonah, um, we see that Jonah, who's a prophet of God, he receives this message from the Lord. And he says, Go to the people of Nineveh and give them a warning. Let them know that their sin is leading them to the path of destruction. And so Jonah, uh, he doesn't want to go. And he flees the other direction. And the, the word says that he actually not just flees from Nineveh, but that he flees from the Lord's face. He flees from the Lord's face. And from Jonah's uh, his running, we learned that sometimes God will send us a storm in our lives as an act of love and mercy to say, don't run from me. Come back home. Come back home. And then last week in chapter 2, Megan brought us part 2, and and she brings us to the point in chapter 2 where Jonah is inside the belly of a great big fish. Uh, And Jonah is inside this fish hanging out, and he's praying. And in Jonah's prayer, uh, we learn that he kind of understands God's grace a little bit. Like he understands that if he's to be saved, it will be God that saves him and that God is willing to save him. But he also reveals a lack of understanding of the fullness of grace. Because as he's praying, He shows that that he believes there's something that he could do to make himself more worthy of receiving God's grace than someone else and something that someone else could do to make themselves less worthy than him of God's grace. And Jonah's misunderstanding of God's grace teaches us two things. One, Jonah's misunderstanding of God's grace did not preclude him from receiving God's grace. Even though he didn't understand it, God still offered it to him in abundance. And second thing that we learn is that even though he didn't understand God's grace, it didn't preclude him from being a minister of God's grace and offering it to the people around him. Um, And so now uh, at the end of chapter 2, the fish swims near the shore and vomits Jonah up out of its stomach onto the dry land. And you may never have thought before last week that you'd hear a sermon about a person being vomited. But uh, there it is. So my once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preach about that. Um, Jonah is now on dry land outside the fish. And we pick up right there at the beginning of chapter 3. And we're going to read together Uh, Jonah chapter 3 in its entirety. It's 10 verses. So right after Jonah finds himself back on dry land, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He gets a second chance. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. In fact, it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going one day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is God's word for us, his people. So we give thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You've given us a whole book, a letter of your words written to us, written for us. And so as we... Come and listen um, to your word and reflect on it, Lord. A couple of requests. First, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would bind my tongue and my lips, that no false word would pass from them, but only your truth spoken by your Holy Spirit. And secondly, Lord, uh, I pray for these people gathered in person and online, and I pray, Lord, um, because you know exactly what they're going through in life and where they're coming from, I pray that you would speak directly to their hearts and minister to them. Offer them just what you know they need. And Lord, we pray all of this to your glory. And this is in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a retired NFL running back by the name of Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch uh, was very, very good. He played mostly for the Seattle Seahawks. At the end of his career, he played elsewhere. Um, but back in 2015, Marshawn Lynch revealed one of his quirks, of which there are many. Uh, Marshawn revealed that he had a very... Uh, unique mind of his own. And one day he decided after his game, I don't really want to show up to my media interviews and answer questions, so I'm not going to. Well, there's one problem with this. In the contract of an NFL player that they sign to receive millions of dollars, it says, I will show up to my media interviews and answer questions. And so the NFL issued a warning to Marshawn and forgive me if I get the details a little jumbled, but basically over the span of a couple of weeks, Marshawn continually doesn't show up for his interviews, and the NFL winds up finding him 
a total of $100,000 because he didn't want to go and answer questions for half an hour. Um, that sounds just like a ludicrous way of thinking to me. $100,000 for some questions? Yes, please. Sign me up. Uh, but Marshawn didn't think so. And um, later on that season, the Seahawks actually made it to the Super Bowl. And this is the biggest stage that the NFL has to offer, as Megan reminded us last week. Um, and the NFL said, we want to get out in front of Marshawn's quirkiness. So they issued him a preemptive warning. And they said, Mr. Lynch, if you don't show up to your media day before the Super Bowl and answer questions for the media, we will fine you $500,000. $500,000. And so as the day approached, the sports world was abuzz. Like, is Marshawn going to show up or not? Is he going to stick it to the man and pay the fine, or will he come and answer questions? And the day arrived, uh, and believe it or not, Marshawn Lynch shows up for his interview. And he stayed for four minutes and 51 seconds. And in that span, he answered 29 questions with the exact same answer. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Lynch. Mr. Lynch, what do you think of the New England Patriots' stout defensive line? Is it going to slow you down when you're rushing the ball at the goal line or when they don't hand it off to you in the biggest part of the game? Never mind. Is it going to slow you down when you're rushing at the goal line? I'm just here so I don't get fined. I kid you not, 29 questions. Mr. Lynch, do you think that Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are the best coach QB duo in NFL history? I'm just here so I don't get fined. Over and over and over again for four minutes and 51 seconds. And then he said, time, and he got up and left. Marshawn Lynch put forth the least possible effort to do what was required of him. Speaking of putting forth the least possible effort to do what's required of you, let's talk about our friend Jonah. To be fair to Jonah, uh, we don't know for sure if the author recorded his entire sermon to the city of Nineveh. But come on. I mean, we spent three weeks with this guy. We know kind of what he's like. We know he's not out here doing the most for the people of Nineveh. Okay, he's out here to put out the least possible effort to do what he has to do. I mean, can't you just picture him walking around the city? I'm just here so I don't get eaten by a fish. It's very easy to picture this in my mind. Um... And verses 3 and 4 tell us kind of what that experience was like. So it tells us first that Nineveh is a huge city. It takes three days to walk across Nineveh. Just to give you a rough idea of what that's like at the average speed of the human walker, three miles per hour, you could walk from Alvin to the woodlands about once per day if you were really putting in the miles. So Nineveh is like almost three times the size of greater Houston. This city is 
massive. And we don't know if Jonah made it all the way across the city, and I really lean towards no. Uh, What we do know is that he started off with a one-day journey. He made it one day in, and it says he's walking around through the city proclaiming and repeating this message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, y'all, that's an eight-word sermon. Some of y'all are like, and I wish you would preach an eight-word sermon sometime. Could go get some lunch. And it's not going to happen. What we see here in Jonah chapter 3 is Jonah puts forth an incredibly, to my perspective, weak effort. He puts forth a weak effort. We know from chapter 4 and chapters 1 and 2 that he really didn't want to be there. It's easy to imagine that, that he wasn't, didn't really have his heart in this. And yet we see that God is still full of mercy, full of love, and full of power, and uses Jonah's weak effort to bring about an incredible transformation in the city of Nineveh. We could preach a whole lot of sermons about how God uses our weak efforts to do incredible things. And that's going to be saved for another time. Because this morning there's something that I think is more important for us to hear today. Here it is. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances. Chances. Right at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1, we see it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. How many times? A second time. Jonah gets a second chance. The people of Nineveh, in the midst of their wickedness and violence and idolatry, they get a second chance. God is a God of second chances. And we see this thing that kind of is confusing. Why does God care so much about offering a second chance to the people of Nineveh? Because the people of Nineveh have already been described as wicked, as violent, as oppressive to the weak, as idolaters. They're Israel's enemy number one. Why does God want to offer them a second chance? And when I take the whole book of Jonah in its entirety, there's something that just jumps right off the pages. God is absolutely obsessed with the people of Nineveh. God just adores the people of Nineveh. Here's why I think that. God, his own voice, mentions the city of Nineveh four times in the short book of Jonah. He mentions it four times. And every single time he mentions the city of Nineveh, he calls it by a pet name. He says, Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh, that great city. Some translators say it's better translated, Nineveh, that great city to me. 
They are great to me. Now, here's a tool for all of you Bible scholars out there. When you're studying the Bible, the, and, and you see that something is repeated multiple times in one section of Scripture, that means it's really, really important. The way that ancient languages work is if they want to emphasize the importance of something, they repeat it. They say it multiple times. And so when a biblical author writes the same thing over and over again, it should clue you in. This is a really important thing that this author is trying to communicate. But how about this? When the God of the universe mentions something four times in a row, probably pretty important. I mean, think about if you were having a conversation with like the, the president of the United States and he mentioned something four times in the span of your conversation, you'd probably pay attention to that thing. It's probably pretty important to him. And God mentions that Nineveh is a great city to him four times. God loves the people of Nineveh so much in spite of the fact that they're idol worshipers, they're a violent people. In Matthew 5:44 or 43 and 44 we get a look into God's heart. And Jesus, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. One of his most famous sermons And Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard that it's logical. You should love your neighbor, the people who you're friends with, and hate those who are against you. But I tell you, Jesus says, Love your enemy and pray for those who hurt you, who persecute you, who are against you. And guys, God's not holding a double standard here. He's not saying, you have to love your enemies and I'm not going to. In verse 45, the very next verse, Jesus says, When you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you are children of your Father in heaven. God says, hey, kids, listen up. If you want to be like me, if you want people to know that I'm your dad, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God loves the people of Nineveh, though they are his enemies, so much that he offers them a second chance. In the English language, there's something called an autological word. And an autological word, uh, I had to look this up to see what it meant. It means a word that describes itself. Okay, it is something and it's describing that very thing which it is. For example, the word word. It is a word, and it describes, come on, people, words. 
Thank you. It's a word, and it describes words, so it describes itself. You see what I mean? The same thing with uh, the word English. It's describing English, and it is an English word. It's an autological word. The prophet Jonah, he's kind of the same way. You see, his job was to preach mercy and love to God's enemies. His job was to preach mercy and love to God's enemies as a prophet. And his life itself was a prophecy of God's mercy and love to his enemies. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, again, teaching, talking, and there are some Pharisees gathered listening. Pharisees, uh, they want Jesus to fail. They don't like him. They say uh, to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Show us a miracle to back up your authority on these things about which you teach. And he answers them, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, the sign of Jonah is what I will give you. The life of Jonah was pointing to Jesus. Jonah went in the fish three days and three nights and came out onto dry land. Jesus went in the tomb three days and three nights and came out uh, alive again. Jonah was a messenger of mercy to God's enemies. Brothers and sisters, We were once God's enemies. The scripture says that sin makes us not just not God's friends. It makes us God's enemies. Our sin is actively opposed to God. Jesus came to us in offering of love and mercy to God's enemies. And Jesus points out the difference between these Pharisees and the people of Nineveh. In fact, he says that the men of Nineveh who heard Jonah's preaching and repented will stand up on judgment day and they will condemn this generation who's listening. Because they heard Jonah's preaching and they repented of their sin. And yet, these people who have the one who's greater than Jonah, Jesus says. I'm greater than Jonah. I'm offering you love and mercy. All you need to do is believe and repent. And you're not. So as we listen to this, we should think. Man, how do we repent? How do we believe? And we can learn uh, through the response of the people of Nineveh. Because verse 10, this is the repentance that Jesus was referring to. It says, 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. He's a God of second chances. When I look at this transformation in the city of Nineveh, I see a revival. I see a city that was dead, headed straight for destruction, and they receive a message of mercy, and by the power of his spirit at work in their hearts, they believe and repent. They they turn away, that's what the word repent means, turn away from their evil ways and towards God, and he saves them. He offers them mercy. And this concept of revival, um, revive is our annual theme at Covenant. We've been preaching, uh, pointing towards revival, and we've been praying week after week for revival in this community. And not just in this church, but in Creekside at large, in our in. Uh, our church family, and in Creekside at large, our mission field. And I got to be really honest for just a few moments. When I look out at Creekside, when I look at myself, when I look at you, I don't see people that are dead. I don't see people that are dead like the city of Nineveh was before their revival. But I feel like we're asleep. I feel like we're drowsy. I feel like the word of God falls on us of his grace and mercy and his love for those around us and his command for us to love those around us with the love that he offers us. And I feel like we're just asleep. We're nodding off. I mean, we'd rather, we'd rather watch sports than gather with the community of faith We'd rather sleep in an extra 10 minutes than get up and spend 10 minutes with our Savior. We'd rather move on with our shopping and get home instead of stop and and talk with someone and, and maybe tell them about the Jesus who loves them. I feel like a lot of us are asleep. And we need an awakening a revival. We have so many distractions. And when we hear God's word and it says, look at these people I love, go and share the gospel with them, and then Satan whispers and says, shh, 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 shh. it's okay. They're not in danger. They're not really in danger. Everything's fine. Look at this. Look over here. Look, look at this wealth you can collect. You're really good at Collecting wealth. Look at this wealth you can collect. Look at this. Look at this sport you love, this activity you love. 
Don't you feel like you could just, you deserve a little extra sleep today? I've been praying for awakening in me, in you, and in the community at large. Because church, when there's a community that's in the midst of an awakening, you can tell. You can really tell. You can really tell because the Spirit of God is working powerfully. He's moving. There are, there are miracles. People are healed. Sins are forgiven. Families are reunited. You can really tell. It just bubbles out from people. The people of Nineveh, uh, they teach us a beautiful lesson about repentance. Their repentance begins, um, and the way that the king calls them, leads them to respond, is in verse 8. He says, let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. That represents humility before God. And he says... Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The Hebrew word for urgently here, it's literally translated to mean strong, force, and violence. The king is so earnest in leading his people to repent, he says, call on God violently. Use great force. Pray with power. Beg him to forgive us. Have mercy on us and save us from this destruction. Who knows? Verse 9, who knows? Maybe God will relent and have compassion and turn from his anger so that we will not perish. In the 1800s, there was a Presbyterian pastor named Arthur Pearson. And he's famously quoted as saying this about spiritual awakening. There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. There's never been a spiritual awakening that did not begin in united prayer. And here's why. It's the Spirit of God that revives us. It's not us picking ourselves up and waking us up. It's the Spirit of God that revives us. And so it starts with asking Him. And I love how He says it begins in united prayer. The people of Nineveh, there was no finger pointing that says, Hey, I'm not as bad as those guys. They really need the prayer for mercy. From the greatest to the least, everyone was praying, was humbling themselves and repenting and asking for God to relent. And so people, people of God, if you look around the community and you see people who are spiritually drowsy, spiritually sleeping, spiritually dead, if you yourself are drowsy, Distractible. Let us be united in prayer. Let us pray violently 
for this community. God loves his enemies. And he calls us to be like him and do the same. And church, if you're feeling asleep or you look around and you see a bunch of sleepers, please, please, please don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. What's the first thing that we talked about from this passage? God is a God of second chances. Jonah's very life is a testament to that. Jesus has come with the sign of Jonah, three days in the tomb, rising again, offering mercy and love to his enemies. Don't be discouraged. God loves you so much. And when you come to him and you say, God, I've been asleep. We as a people have been asleep in this community. He's not going to be angry. He's going to welcome you with open arms. Good morning. God, as long as we draw breath, God will offer us second chances. So we plead the cross of Christ over us, our families, and our community. Let's pray. Father, to start, um, I just, before you, uh, humbly, I repent of the ways that I've been asleep, that I've been drowsy, distracted. Thank you for your forgiveness, your innumerable second chances. Your mercy's new every morning. Thank you, Father. And I pray for this church, this community. God, please send a powerful movement of your Holy Spirit to awaken the sleepers. Use those who are awake. Use our humble and weak offerings to bring about a mighty work of transformation by your power made perfect in our weakness. And then now, if you would, if you're willing, just take a couple moments to pray privately. And if you think that you have been asleep or you want to pray on behalf of this community, take a few moments to humbly repent before God, if you're willing.